Hey, it's Shane here. Throughout the majority of my career, I spent thousands of hours on my technique to try to be as close to perfect as I could be. But the one thing I didn't work on was my mental skills. On the exact mindset I needed every ball to be able to access all of my technical skills that I worked so hard to develop. Well, I've recently released my book, Winning the Inner Battle, which has all of the information that you will ever need to deeply understand how you can create the correct mindset for you so that you can bring the best version of yourself every time you step out into the middle. Go to shamewatson.au to purchase a copy of Winning the Inner Battle now. It is available in paperback, ebook, or audiobook versions. Well, it's now time for your episode of Lessons Learned with the Greats. Enjoy. One of my pet hates is when players say, oh, it just wasn't my day today. No, it just wasn't my day. You know, the ball wasn't coming. Well, you can't do that. You've got to find a way. You have to find a way to get into the game. So what I used to do was I'd pick a fight with someone. Not a, you know, come on, mate, let's go, physical yeah. fight. But, so I'd be like, you know, if, you, if I was playing against you and you were talking with your batting mate and I was walking back to slip, I'd say, what are you looking at? And you'd say, you didn't do anything. And you suddenly you'd start to get annoyed and go, what? Get stuff, mate, or whatever you might say. Yep. So somehow i go, well, come on then. So now it's a battle. Hmm. Now it's me and you. Today's another incredibly special day for me on Lessons Learned with the Greats. On this episode, I have the absolute privilege and honour to talking to and gaining incredible insights from the best bowler that Australia has ever produced. In the year 2000, he was voted by Wisden as one of the best five cricketers of the 20th century. From the first day that I met this guy, as I arrived as a 20-year-old on my first tour to South Africa with the Australian team, he has been a phenomenal mentor, a friend, and if it wasn't for this guy, I would never have been the cricketer that I was. Shane Warne, thank you so much for coming on my show. Oh, what I thank you very much. I'm starting to tear up. Thank you very much. What <laughs> I appreciate that. Very kind, mate. Very kind. Um, I'm just going to get into these incredible statistics that, that you have, that you achieved. I'm just going to read out a few of these okay. phenomenal, phenomenal numbers. Right, yeah. <laughs> so, Warney played 145 <laughs> test matches, taking an incredible 708 test wickets at an amazing average of 25.41 with 37 five-wicket hauls. To go with this, Warney also scored a lot of valuable low-order runs with his high score of oh. 99 against New Zealand <laughs> at the Wacker. How can we not forget that? Um, he, took, uh. <laughs> he took 1,319 first-class wickets at an average of 26.11 with 69 five-wicket hauls. He played 194 one-day one day internationals, taking 293 wickets at an average of 25.73. He played 73 domestic T20 games, with a lot of them being as my captain for the Rajasthan Royals, and taking taking 70 wickets at 26.61 with an amazing economy rate of 7.22. Warney was the most dominant force in world cricket for nearly two decades and was a once-in-a-lifetime bowler with his skill of bowling leg spin, something that had never been seen before and most probably won't be seen again, especially in my lifetime. Okay, Warney, here are a couple of my favorite memories of you growing up. It's, look, it's incredibly hard to narrow down to a couple um, as there are so many, but here I go. <laughs> okay, for me, your 8 for 71 against England uh, in Brisbane in 1994, it really etched a deep memory in my mind. To bamboozle the English like that was so special to see the big turning leg breaks, 
the sliders and the flippers, it was just something that I had never seen before, not just me, but the world. <laughs> and then to do it at the Gabba, which was always known as being not so conducive to spin, it was like, okay, this guy, is he's game-changing. My second favourite memory of yours mm-hmm. was your spell that you bowled in the semi-final of the 1999 World Cup against South Africa. You ended up with four for 29, but to have the skill and mental strength to be able to perform like that in such a big game, like watching the highlights on YouTube, it still makes the hairs in the back of my neck still stand up. It's phenomenal to be able to watch. So I've given a couple of my highlights, which is so hard to narrow down to two, but is there one or two that uh, highlights that really stands out for you, Warney? Uh, well, first of all, thank you very much. What I think my kid's going to run out. This is your life or something in a minute. But, uh, <laughs> uh, thank you. You're very, very kind. Uh, I think when you look back on your career, it's about moments that mean a lot to you. It mightn't sort of be your best figures or your best highest scores or any of those things. It's times in your life where you might have been struggling internally and things change. So for me, 92... Um, West Indies Test match at the MCG. Mm. I'd played for about a year or so, maybe a bit longer in the Australian side. I'd been dropped. I'd been in and out of the side two or three times and I hadn't really delivered. So I, I didn't feel like I belonged to that level and I felt a little bit out of my depth. So to play the West Indies back then, you know, and they had Desmond Haynes and all those legends, Richie Richardson, all those guys I had. They hadn't lost the series in 15 years. They are the best side in the world. We're playing at the MCG. Um, I'd been spanked all over the park in the first thing. I think I got none for 100 in the first innings and people were riding me off. And it's one of those things that it got to the last day. So the situation of the game is the West Indies need, I think, 300, 310 or something to win the last day and they're cruising. Alan Border throws the ball to me and says, "Radio, next over that end. I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> and I remember I've played India and been spanked. I've played Sri Lanka. I've been spanked. Um, I've just started uh, back and got picked back into the side for this Boxing Day Test match in front of in the MCG family, friends, everyone's coming along, and I'm getting spanked all over the park. Western is, as I said, need 300 runs to win, and it was just before lunch. Richie Richardson was batting with Phil Simmons, who was who got a big score, and I set Richie Richardson up. I said I hadn't really bowled a flipper at the international level at that stage because I was too scared. So I think when you first start. You, you, you don't want to embarrass yourself, so you you don't try too much. You just do everything cautiously. You're not prepared to take any risks whatsoever. So I was just bowling leg break, leg break, and occasionally I'd throw a wrong one in or um, try a straight one or something, but I wouldn't try any too much stuff like around the wicket or just go for it. I wouldn't go for it. I'd be hesitant. So this day, as I said, set Richie Richardson up, ready to go, and I thought, you know what, I'm just going to try and bowl this flipper. And I was so scared that I was going to bowl a full bunger that would go over the back, <laughs> but I landed it. I landed it. And it knocked Richie Richardson over. And then from that moment, I went on to take seven for 52 and started to think, wow, I, we've just beaten the West Indies. I contributed to a win. So it made me feel like I was good enough. And once you feel like you're good enough at a certain level, at the highest level, for us, it was like... Okay, right. Now you want to test yourself and start to get you get in different situations so you learn how to react. But it's about, come on, mate, what do you got? I've got this. And then you want to see how good you are and test yourself against the best. So from that moment, 
um, to the rest of my career, I was pretty lucky to play in a great era of Australian cricket and have some success along the way and take a few poles and stuff. But um, that that day was really special. That was special for me. Um, mm. Just an, that realization that I was good enough for that level um, is a pretty amazing feeling. Then, because from then on, that's when you start to experiment. You start to go for it. You take a few more risks. Um, and if it doesn't work, you know you're not going. You know you're playing the next game. So you're not mm. playing for your spot all the time. And it's a completely different mindset when you're playing for your spot all the time. It's really hard. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that was a big turning moment. So that was one moment. Um, I think the Gatting ball in 93, my first ever ball in Ashes cricket, that was probably something I look back because that changed my entire life. Um, that suddenly opened my eyes up as a, I think I was 22 or 23 years of age to the other side of playing international cricket, the so-called celebrity. I hate the word celebrity, but being yeah. in the public eye and people interested in what you do off the field. So as a 22, 23-year-old, I remember um, uh, we stayed in uh, the uh, Westbury Hotel in Conduit Street in London. That's where the 93 Ashes was. And around the corner, there was a pub called The Windmill. And, you know, one of my best mates, Merv Hughes, we'd go for a pint down at The Windmill come out of the pub and there was 20 photographers taking photos. I'm like, what the hell's going on here? Who cares? And so they'd follow you everywhere you went. They were looking for the worst photo they could find. Just restaurants should come out. So as a 22, 23-year-old, just a cricketer, trying to do the best I can and have some fun, suddenly that opened me up to the other side of, um, you know, being in the public eye and how that can happen. So they were the two, I suppose, really – turning points or eye-openers in my career, one on the field and the second one off it. Yeah, interesting. Um, when you talked about your mindset there in, your, in that test match against the West Indies and you went from being hesitant to then saying, I'm just going to ta- take it on. I'm going to bomb a flipper. From that moment on, was, did you just start believing it? You know what? That's just how, that's a mentality. That's my mental space that I need to be in for me to be at my absolute best. And just, you just kept repeating that over and over again, like until you stopped playing. Yeah, I think, you know, when that time, when everyone starts in whatever field it might be in, whether it be in business, whether it be in sport, whether it be in music, you know, and so on, whatever you do in life, there's a moment where you just deliver and whatever that might be. And to get, and no matter what anyone says to you or tries to inspire you or motivate you, uh, and they're all great with people telling you you're good enough and all that sort of stuff, but you never believe it until you actually do it. There's no secret formula. There's no anything like that. You've just got to do it. And if you're good enough, you will. Mm. And then once you've done it once, that's, then it's about your mindset and your approach uh, to it. So my mindset from sort of that moment on um, was no matter who's batting down the other end, I feel I can get you out. <laughs> and that's a, a big, rather than scared of bowling to someone, oh, no, this guy's going to whack me. Um, or when you're batting, oh, this guy can get me out. How far? He can bowl a great bumper. He's got an outswing and inswinger. He's got an unbelievable slow ball. Oh, geez, what am I looking? <laughs> so suddenly you're looking for all these different things rather than just playing the ball. Mm. So it's a relaxation of your your headspace that I think. But you can't do it until you've actually done it. Mm. And if you're good enough, you will do it. And then once you've done it once, then it's about you saying, okay, well, how good am I? And that's something you just do internally. And you want to test yourself. And then your body language and everything when you walk out in the field is the confidence because you feel no matter who's down the other end, you can get them out. Yeah. So 
that was sort of my mindset. And the other thing was, I, I never saw cricket as a job. You know, I, 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 I always saw it as how lucky am I to be doing this? I love doing it. And how lucky am I? So I sort of saw it as a, a hobby and as fun. And I, I think I played in that way when I, you know, I, I think I entertained people. And I, I think as Australian side, we played in it to entertain people too. So I think I had that mindset uh, most of the time was go out and have some fun. No matter who's down the other end, I can get you out. I might not get you out. You might smash me all over the park, but I'll get you next time. Yeah. So I didn't give up. And I think it was one of those things that, you, you, yeah, you just have to do it. Once you've done it once and you realise that you're good enough, then it's a matter of how – then it's a, a different things come into it. How driven are you? Mm. Uh, what do you want to achieve? How do you keep motivating yourself over a long period of time? Uh, how do you inspire yourself? All those different things come into it after you've done it a few times and you realise you're good enough. Up until that stage, it's all about – scared you're scared you know you, you, yeah. you just don't want to do the wrong thing and embarrass yourself but after that and you've delivered then it's a matter of driven and, yeah. and that's when practice and, and mental toughness different situations come up how you handle that that's a completely different thing so you evolve as a person and as a cricketer and um you know i was lucky enough that it did okay so was there a time was there a time in your career where you weren't the ball wasn't coming out exactly how you wanted it and you just and you had to work through yeah obviously there's two components to it the technical component and the mental the mental aspect as well but was there from the mindset aspect a time where you just you thought okay it's not working for me i need to find my mind the right mindset for me to be my best or did you just always after that first time against the west indies did you just always know how to bring yourself into that mindset that you needed to be your best I, I, there was obviously challenges along the way, and oh. I, I, I once at Western Eastern, I always had that mentality after yeah, that. Okay. I don't care who you are, I can get yeah. <laughs> and I, I always believed in myself. That wasn't an arrogance; that was a confidence in my own ability. Mm. But along my journey of you know from 1990 when I started playing to 2013 when I finished along 23 years, there was a lot of challenges along that way. Mm. And the first real challenge was 1996 when I had my finger operation. Mm. I had to put my hand out like that and have a cortisone injection jabbed into my spinning finger. So I went through a stage of when I came back after it, it felt different. <laughs> so bowling spin or anything is all about feel and rhythm. And when you haven't got that, it's like, oh, hang on, why not? You know. So I had to work through that. Um, so that took a little bit of time. So that was a bit of a challenge and a frustrating time mm. because I, nothing had changed besides a few injections in my finger, but it felt completely, completely different. <laughs> um, so that suddenly, you know, you'd bowl the ball and it would spin a mile and you go, hang on, that didn't feel right. And then you'd have one that you felt like it used to and it would go, it wouldn't spin as much. So I had to work through that. That was the first sort of real challenge I had. Mm-hmm. And then 98, um, the... My shoulder, I, from 90, 1990 to 98, that nine seasons, we, you've got to remember back then, I know the modern-day player play a lot of cricket, but as far as balls bowled, mm. we used to bowl so many balls back then in first-class cricket. So there's no T20, but first-class cricket. So they were four days. They were 30 overs you were bowling it most days and in practice as well. So with the amount of balls and the wear and tear, and then – I, wasn't, I used to have a really good wronging uh, when I first started. And then I had this day, a season where after my finger 96, when things weren't feeling uh, great, 
I, and I, I couldn't bowl my wrong as well. And I was really, and I said, right, I'm not leaving this nets until I bowl. I'm happy with my wrong again. And I stayed there for about four or five hours, and I just bowled a lot of wrongs, and my shoulder was already gone, and it was gone. And we went to India in '98, and my shoulder was basically hanging off, and uh, I, I didn't very have a very. I started off okay, but as the tour got on. I, I was, it just got worse and worse. I came back after that tour and we had a quick one day tour in Dubai, came back, had a shoulder up and they said, uh, I had what's called a slap lesion, mm. which is what javelin throwers have. And they basically rebuild your shoulder. So I had a period there where it was for probably a few years that I just wasn't at my best. Mm. I was still okay, but you know, finger then shoulder. And then 2001, I did my finger again. When I went for a catch, yeah. Mark went to sweep Colin Miller. <laughs> and I was at slip. I said, yeah, I got this. Hit the top of my finger, bounced up, caught it, threw the ball the umpire. I looked down and my finger was that way. So then I had to have these screws and that in the finger with this hook coming out of my finger. I was like, oh, what? So I had that period there in the middle. I sort of my start of my career, I, everything was great. And the end of my career was great because I was injury-free. But there's that little period in the middle where I was in a bit inconsistent. Oh, yeah, sure. You know, 99 World Cup was good and there was a few great things. But there was also a lot more um, not as good. You know, I wasn't as consistently as good. And that was really frustrating for me um, because you want to deliver what you could, but you physically couldn't. You know, I, you just couldn't. And it just took a bit of time. And then in 2003, when I had a year off, everything healed. My knees, my backs, and just gave myself a year off. I came back in four, five, six, seven, and then into the IPL, eight, nine, mm. everything was still pretty good again. So, yeah, yeah, it was a frustrating time in the middle um, to try and stay positive there when you physically couldn't do what you wanted. Um, yeah. But I look back on that and go, it sort of helped me respect and had that satisfaction of when things were really good with to, to work your way through it and practice so hard to get back to that. I could have easily mm. said, oh, look, you know, I, I'm done. Mm. But I, I kept fighting and I, I, I wasn't going to give up. So I, I'm pretty proud of that. Yeah, no, for sure, mate. Because it's a long-winded answer. No, 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 sort of- <laughs> not at all. Because the thing is, like, people, when you look – you look at you now, people just go, oh, he must have just been, it must have been a perfect ride all the way through because he dominated. He, he was able to uh, get mm. 708 test wickets. It must have been a perfect ride. But life isn't that mm. way. And and for people to understand mm. that there were was a period of time where you felt like it wasn't, you weren't at your best because of the you know, physical mm. challenges that you were having. Yeah, and I don't think people understand coming back from injury and major injuries. Like, mm. you know, I'm a, a, I use my fingers, my wrists, my shoulder, to mainly bowl, but obviously the rest of my body too. So a knee op in the between all that stuff as well. But coming back from injury, it's all right when you're with a team and, uh, you know, Warney's over there doing his rehab and all that. That's great because you've got the guys around you and that. But getting up at 6am and going for a swim or going down the gym and sitting there with a TheraBand and going like this <laughs> by yourself in the winters when it's cold, it's, it's, it tests how important it is to you. And they're the hard times. <laughs> And they're the things that people don't see that get you there. You go, they say, you know, you might be out like I was for 12 months. I said, oh, you know, what have you been doing? Are you, are you rehabbing? Yeah. But, you know, every day, twice a day rehabbing is not great fun by yourself. It's, it's hard. But I look back at it and think, well, 
all those hours that you put into that, it was worthwhile to see the end result that was pretty good. But it's bloody tough. It's very hard for any sportsman to go through because the worry, the stress of, am I going to be any good again? Um, and then getting back to the feel of it, once you get out of whatever you're doing for a while, the rhythm of it, and around the group, you sort of feel like you're introducing yourself to the group again because they've been doing their thing. So it's never easy just to walk back and say, hey, boys, yeah, let's let's get into it, eh? You, you, you've, you've been, you just got to feel your way into it a little. So it's, 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 it's tough, but it's very rewarding and satisfying too when you do deliver and all that hard work. You know, you're walking off the ground, you've taken a few wickets, made a few runs, hang on to a couple, and you've won the test match. You walk off going, yeah, yeah, okay, that was pretty good. It was worth yeah, it. Yeah. And you just feel a sense of satisfaction. Yeah, that deep down satisfaction. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think that's why all sportsmen say, my family and close friends, I want to thank them. <laughs> it's not because they drove in the car when you're 11 and all that. It's because they see you come home and throw a water bottle down and go, I'm sick of doing this. I just want to play. Or they see the hard yards. They see all that hard stuff that you do. And that's why we appreciate them and then we have an opportunity to thank them. Um, when people ask us, um, you want to thank them because they've seen all the hard stuff. Yep, no question. So cricket is a skills-based game and for you to be able to get to a yep. point where you're able to achieve you know, these incredible things, was there one or two specific technical components that you worked really hard on to, and once you develop those technical components that you knew, yeah, okay, if I do this over and over again, I'm going to be able to, I'll be at my best very consistently. Yeah, there is. Um, I wasn't a technical person, but that's only because I understood my own game and you've got to understand yourself. Mm. Once you understand yourself and know yourself, that's really important, how you tick and what makes you tick and what you need to perform. Um so when I first started, obviously, you know, front arm and arm heights and all alignment and all those sorts of things are really important. But once you've got them and you've got the muscle memory and so it becomes other things why you don't perform on a day. It's got nothing to do with technical side of things because what I see so many young people do is get technical. For instance, if you're a bowler um, and you're not bowling well, you'll have bowling coaches, assistant coaches, coaches, friends, teammates, everything comes and say, oh, mate, I don't think you're doing this. You don't, you're not doing that. So then you try all the things that they tell you. Then after a few months of that not working, you go, you know what, stuff this. I'm just going back to bowling the ball. And you end up bowling well. So you're thinking completely different. You, so you got out of the technical side of things. So if I wasn't bowling well, I would – there was a few things I did. If I wasn't bowling well, I would generally start to think, okay, what bat, what shot do I want the batsman to play? <laughs> so then my muscle memory would kick in about I want them to drive. Um, so I bowl slower and wider to get them to drive. All right, I want to set. It, I want to push him back and then try and get him to come down the pitch when I want him to. So I'd naturally bowl a bit faster and push him back and then bowl slower and wider. So I started to think about plans and things like that uh, and how to get someone out rather than front arm up, follow through. You forgot what you actually try to do and how you're getting someone out. So I hate getting technical with things. Mm. Uh, batting is a little different because sometimes you get into little habits that you don't realise you're getting into. Mm. But I still believe if it, it comes back to just watching the ball and the way you think and not being afraid to get out. Mm. If you're not afraid to get out and you just watch the ball, 
you're going to bat a lot better than, well, this guy's a good bowler. The team needs me to hang in here now. I've got to start. If you're not afraid to get out, you won't. Yep. If you get knocked over from a good ball, so be it. But I think if you worry about what might happen with a ball or with a bat or anything, that's when you get yourself into trouble. So, sure, if, you are phys- if you've suddenly got into habits of falling over when you're batting mm. or when you're bowling, you're suddenly doing this, have a look at it. Yep. And have a- but if you think about how you're getting someone out or when you're batting, how I'm going to score against this guy, just watch the ball, I bet you'll do okay rather than front arm up, follow through, all that stuff. So, yep. yeah, I, I don't think you lose your technical side of things. It's just basically what they'll do with the way you think. It's amazing talk, you're talking about the visualization component because the power of that, mm. as you said, that's when, you, that's when your muscle memory kicks in, all the work that you've done, and then you're visualizing what you want to do, where, where you want the ball to go, yep. how you want it to bowl. And it, as you said there with the batting, <laughs> it's such a simple, simple mental mindset shift. But instead of going, which I did a number of times when I wasn't at my best throughout my career, was don't get out. I need to score runs today. I can't, like, this guy's good. He's got a good short ball, whatever it was. As soon as you flip that and go, you know, I don't care if I get out. I'm just going to go. I'm going down my way. It's amazing. Yeah. Then your muscle memory kicks, kicks in and you do things. Yeah. You're like, whoa, okay. I didn't realize. Well, I knew, I've been working very hard for that, but that's yeah. the skill that I've got inside of me. Yep. And that's right. And it's about, it's, 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 it all is, is a, and and when you say I'm going down my way, it doesn't mean you've got to smack the ball out of the park every day. It's just <laughs> solid in defence, or it's a mm. it's a switched on intensity that you play with. Mm. You know, whether it's a drop and run, get off strike. So you're suddenly just thinking about scoring. You're thinking mm. about manipulating the field with the spinners bowling. There's so many different things, it, it, and it's more fun. How yeah. much more enjoyable yeah, is it, it when you're batting like that? Rather than, <laughs> oh, this guy's going to bowl. Oh no, he's got me out of get. You know, it's. But yeah. we, everyone goes through it, and once yeah. you play for a period of time, you start to understand your own. And that's why I said you've got to know yourself. Mm. You've got to know sometimes when you fall into those habits that you know you've got to get out of it pretty quickly. Yep, absolutely. And just throughout your career, you, you talked about the injuries that you had and key injuries with your finger and your shoulder. Did you have to adjust and make adjustments to your technique to be able to then get the ball to come out exactly how you wanted wanted to and have that control that you had previously? Yeah, that was hours of practice in the nets mm. of just getting that feel back all the time. Um, and then the other thing is is when you're in game, it's okay at practice, but when you're in game and it's not happening, one of my pet hates is when players say, oh, it just wasn't my day today. No, it just wasn't my day. You know, the ball wasn't coming. Well, you can't do that. You've got to find a way. You have to find a way to get into the game. So what I used to do, was I'd pick a fight with someone. Not a, you know, come on, mate, let's go, physical fight. Yeah. <laughs> but, so I'd be like, you know, if you if I was playing against you and you were talking with your batting mate and I was walking back to slip, I'd say, what are you looking at? And you'd say, you didn't do anything. And you suddenly you'd start to get annoyed and go, what? Get stuff, mate, or whatever you might say. <laughs> yeah. So somehow i go, well, come on then. So now it's a battle. Hmm. Now it's me and you. <laughs> so I didn't always do that, but I found that, that my competitive side would come out a lot more like that. So I wasn't doing it really for any other reason than to get myself up and well occasionally if it was someone else that I wanted to have a go at I would but I enjoyed that too but yeah but that would that was one way I found to get myself into the competition and the other way if I lost a bit of rhythm was I'd go around the wicket because if your action is not strong around the wicket you're going to bowl it off the pitch you're going to bowl it all over the place um, so I found like if I just had to go around the wicket for an over or two just to say, oh, yeah, I found my rhythm back, now get back over. <laughs> so not stay there too long. 
Yeah. Um, so that because all the things that you need to do as a bowler with your body and rotation and all those things that the bowling coaches love, um, you have to do that from around. You have to be aligned. Mm. You have to mm. do all that stuff to get the ball in the right spot down there. So mm. I'd, yeah, just go around the wicket, even if it was day one, whatever day, um, just go around there for a few overs, even a few deliveries, and then get straight back over. So that was in-game, <laughs> the things I'd do to try and find my rhythm because I hate just saying, it wasn't my day. The ball just wasn't coming out well. Well, your team needed okay. to be better than that. Um, <laughs> I'm happy to walk off the field and say, you know what? What I was too good for me today. Smacked me for 150. I gave it my best, but he was too good. <laughs> I, but I'll bloody get him tomorrow. Yeah. You know, so I, I have no shame yeah. or no problem with folks being better than me on the day. That's no problem whatsoever. Yeah. That happened plenty of times. Did it? <laughs> yeah, it did. Me mortals. So you talked about your the challenges that you had with with injuries in particular through that middle part of your career. Through what you learnt through that period, was there a way that you knew how to manage your body as well as you could, so then you could bring your best to every game that you play? Was, it, was there a way for you to manage your body and look after your body so you could bring, bring your best every time you went out to play? There was. I think mainly for me, I, you, you have got to have a routine and everyone mm. likes their own sort of routine and everyone is different. That's why you're playing a team sport and that's why leaders of teams have to understand that everyone is different. Not everyone likes to be in the nets for four hours. Mm. Some people like to, some don't. So there's got to be a certain amount of things you do as a team. You have to, everyone has to buy into that. But then there has to be the flexibility for people to go off and do their own things. And if that means they've had enough, that's fine. Now, the proof is in if they perform. If they're not performing, then you have to change your preparation. And then maybe you do have to do more or have to do less. Whatever it is, you have to figure that out. Um, But for me with my body, I, I, I have a a tendency to put on weight if I just look at a cheese sandwich. Yes, yeah, so do so, I. So what's wrong with that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. So I found, like, from that time, 92 to 98, and probably three to seven, I was pretty fit. But in the middle, when I'm sitting there in a cast with my shoulder like that, just sitting in a chair and eating that, I got heavier. So that put pressure on my knees and things like that. So with my weight fluctuating and not me not really caring, um, I, I had to manage my body a lot. So my main thing was my shoulder. If my shoulder, my, my hips were okay, then I could actually do what I wanted to do. So it didn't matter if I was a stone overweight, 10 kilos or super fit. It didn't matter as long as I cleared that. So the physios for me were really important to make sure my shoulder was loose, my hips were loose so I could drive through. And, you know, that was it really for me. I just had to stay strong. So there was a lot of TheraBand stuff. And a lot of physical upper body strength that I always had to do. Um, but that was mainly about it. If I could deliver what I wanted to do, and the only way I couldn't do that was if my shoulder and um, wasn't strong enough or flexible enough, and my forearm, because I gripped the ball and doing that so many times, I had to have massage through my shoulder and forearm. If that was loose, I'd had a decent night's sleep, not too much. I didn't need too much. I felt I was ready to go. One thing that I fell into a trap from a, when I was younger was the obsession with pushing my body to the limit to be as fit as I could to try and get the best out of myself as a cricketer. But 
what you're saying there, the one, the most important thing is your skill. So being able to allow your body to be able to execute your skill over and over again and over, over and over again and again. Yep. Um, yep. There's a big push now for fitness being one of the huge priorities in cricket. What's your perspective on that, knowing your experience, how you got the best out of yourself? Yeah, I think there's yeah, – you obviously have to perform better if you're fitter, mm. I, I think. But what I see – a few times is that the right fitness. So you've got to be fit for your role, not fit for to do every single part of the game. If I'm a fast bowler, I need endurance. I need to be strong through my lower body. That's the most important thing. So whatever the, the fitness things you are to do for that, then that's what I need to do. And most of the time, I, be- I still believe this, fast bowlers, the best way for them not to get injured is to bowl more. <laughs> now, I know that sounds weird, and odd. I did a thing last year where I wanted to work out. I thought back over my career and thought, okay, what were the biggest years we had where we hardly had any breaks? Generally, Ashes years. And worked out how many balls I bowled and how many balls the fast bowlers bowled. So I did 93. So that's, you know, dinosaur time. I did 2005 and I did 2019, uh, 2018. Mm-hmm. And I take Merv Hughes, Glenn McGrath, Mitchell Stark. I did those sort of times. Merv Hughes in '93 bowled over 4,000 deliveries in first-class cricket, let alone practice. McGrath was up around three, just over 3,000 in 2005. Mitchell Stark was 1,000 in 2018 or 2019 in first-class cricket. Oh, yeah. Now, so when when I hear the modern-day cricketers say, "I play," we play so much cricket and all that. Yes, you do, but you don't bowl anywhere near as much as what the old bowlers used to do. Now, dinosaur, prehistoric, all that. So now, Merv Hughes wasn't the fittest guy, but he could bowl that many, four times as many stuff as Mitchell Stark, and I bet you he'd never missed a game compared to Mitchell Stark. Now, I'm not picking on Mitchell Stark. That was just a numbers thing. I'm saying any modern-day fast bowler would be probably the same. So I still believe this sports science stuff, yes, there is a role for sports science. There has to be because we have to be better than that and we have to be fitter and all those things. But the key to the fitness is fit for your role, not absolute fitness to do an Ironman. So I believe that a lot of these fast bowls are breaking down because they're they're training to look good in speedos and Ironman training. It's got to be specific training for the cricketer for your role. That's it. It doesn't have to fit in with every other sport and make sure everyone's lean and got body fat of this sort of – it's just – it's ridiculous. Yeah. Sports science has got a role to play, but it's not the first thing. I'll pick out one one option that I – one thing I thought of just then. Mm -hmm. Peter Siddle was arguably one of Australia's good bowlers or best bowlers at this stage when South Africa were playing Australia and Adelaide Oval and Faf Duplassie got 100 and Siddle bowled. Lots, bowled nearly all day. And there was only, I think, a three-day turnaround till the test match in Perth. Mm-hmm. And Australia-South Africa, one, I think it was 1v2 in the world. It was one all in the series. Go to Perth. Peter Siddle gets ruled out because he might get injured. He might get injured. Now, he might not. But he might because the sports science people said he's redlining, he's bowled this many amount of balls in a short time. Um, we don't think he should play. Selectors don't pick him. Australia lose the test match, 2-1 and the series. Mm-hmm. Now, he might got injured. 
sports science people said he might, then they didn't pick him because they relied on the sports science. Ask the player, Sids, how are you feeling? If you said, mate, I'm absolutely cooked, I'm exhausted, then you don't pick him. If you say, Sids, are you re- I'm ready to go, I'm playing. Okay, good enough for me, mate, you're in. Now, if that person breaks down, he breaks down. Mm. But he might not break down. Yep, see what the limit is. Exactly. So I, I, I worry about the modern-day sportsman listening to sports science first rather than what do you think as an option of weighing up all the information from coaches to player, everything, and then going to sports science, rather directly to sports science first. I think they've got a huge role to play and important, but not the main reason. What do you I think? I completely agree, 100%. Because in the end, two things. One, you're improving your skill and developing your skill or reinforcing your skill when mm-hmm. cricket and football, but cricket is a skill-based game. But with that as well, yep. you are getting your body used to doing what it needs to do as well. So not only improving yep. your skill or reinforcing your skill, your body's getting used to doing that skill over and over again as well. And specifically, yep. as specifically yep. as you can, because it's in, your skill. <laughs> exactly. And in cricket, this is one for the coaches, Watto. You're talking about exactly what you're talking about, batting, bowling, fielding. That is cricket. And that is a skill-based thing for cricket. Now, if I want to do a fielding drill, I'm just not there for fitness. Mm. So don't try and combine fitness and fielding drill, for instance. If I want to hit the stump, <laughs> let's put the stump there, hit the ball at me and let me hit the stump because that's a specific drill. Don't make me run around three cones, juggle three balls, come around and hit the ball at me and then try and hit the stump. That doesn't happen in the game. They smack <laughs> it at you. You've got to be ready for it. You've got to stop it and hit the stump. Yep. So do it specific base. And then you know what? If you want to do fitness, right, come over here. We're going to do 10 hundreds. Mm. And, mate, there's your fitness. Yep. Go off and do your fitness. But do specific. Don't try and combine it all because mm. you don't need to. You've yep. got to keep it specific. Aye, aye. <laughs> <laughs> um, Warnie, you were a great leader, as I experienced uh, with you during our days together at Rajasthan Royals. Um, one thing that really stands out for me especially in the first year because it was getting a group of people from different cultures mm. together as quickly as we could, as you could, was your ability to know how to tap into everyone individually and t- collectively to inspire and stimulate them to get the best out of themselves. Was this just a natural trait that you had inside you or did you actually, did you have to develop these leadership skills? Yeah, I mean, as you know, what that 2008, the first year of the Royals was something special. Mm-hmm. And I know, you know, some of the other people go, the IPL, it's just a 2020. It, it was more than that. This was the first time that there was people that would bid for players in an auction. <laughs> this is the first time that you sort of had, I think we had six different cultures. We had Pakistan, India, New Zealand, Australia, England, and South Africa. South Africa yep. so we had six different cultures in our side. Some didn't speak English. Some did. Um, so to, to gel that group together was really important. There's a couple of things leading up before the first game. Remember, we had this thing where we had to sign the wall the first year. And I walked and I introduced everyone. It was Tendulkar, Ganguly, Laxman, Dravid, Seawag, uh, I'm trying to think who else there was. Uh, uh, I think there was eight of us. Uh, Dhoni, mm. um, uh, Yuvraj. I think that was the yeah, yeah from the eight of, and, Yep. And they said, and Shane Warne. So I was the only sort of retired cricketer with all these Indian gun legends. Then the coaches all came out, 
and there was just me. There was all these other coaches coming out for the other teams, but then there was just me, right? So I was like, okay. Um, so that was, I, to get that squad together, I mean, Snapey, Jeremy Snape and Chuck Berry were fantastic as well as to bounce ideas off and also give me some feedback. But there was one, there was a moment before we announced our squad that was really important. We had, I think, a week to try and do that. We had match simulations, yeah. as you remember, trying to pick a squad out of hundreds of players to narrow it down, I think, to 15 or 16 players. After speaking to everyone, watching everyone, we put that team together. I ring the owner, Manaj Badali. I ring him and said, mate, I've got the list for you. Because he kept ringing me every day saying, "What's that? who's the squad? What are, we need this. What do you think? So I ring him and he goes, well, mate, I'm not going to go what the name, player's name is. I better not say that. But <laughs> he said, oh, we've got to have this guy in the side. And I said, well, he ain't good enough. He's not He's not in the squad. He said, no, no, he has to be. I said, well, <laughs> you asked me to be, he said, you're captain coach, you're the selector. You run it any way you want, how you've always wanted cricket to run. Uh, I'm putting you in charge. I said, that's what you told me. So I'm trying to do it. The guys have been fantastic. We've all we've gelled together really well. This is the team. And he said, well, no, you need this player in. I said, okay, if he has to be in, I'm out. I'm out. <laughs> he goes, well, now you're being silly. I said, I mean it. I said, I've spent a week getting respect from these guys and earning their respect. Not, I had it when I arrived with what I achieved. <laughs> but that can slowly disappear or people not like you or respect you more than anything else. It doesn't matter about liking, it's about respect. But I can lose that respect if I start to put these players in because they can do us some favours for us. I said, that ain't working and that's not how it works. So you make the choice. He said, well, I have to think about this. I said, sure, call me tomorrow. So without trying to drag it on, he called me the next day and he said, okay, can he sit at home games with a shirt on? So now I'm haggling with an owner about a player I don't want in the squad (laughs) to... Make everyone feel comfortable. So that gave my first insight out of how Indian stuff works. Mm. So to get to the Royals, so we planned everything. That first game, you, you will remember it and start to smile about it. So everything went wrong that first game. I ran myself um, out. I bowled a slow ball first ball. Oh. And you're like, don't ball that slow ball. <laughs> Sorry. That's what I've been always done. <laughs> <laughs> but there were so many things that went wrong that day. And I, I'm not sure if you remember, but I remember walking in the dressing room afterwards and it was like, there was people, you know, there was people, it was just doom and gloom. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of the players expected a rocket or like, gee, come on, this is rubbish. I said, boys, you know, no one died, we're okay. We'll get to the next game. So, and I think everyone was sort of like, oh, okay. You know, so we sort of moved on to the next game. And then mm-hmm. I remember saying, right, got two ways to go here. I really got to start to speak to some guys and and myself personally, I've got to deliver this game. Mm. Or I'm going to chase the ball at training as fast as I can and rip my hamstring off the bone so I can go home. Those are two options. I had. I'm glad you picked the first one. <laughs> yeah, and then look, the way the boys gelled together and all that sort of stuff, we won that game. We went on to, mm. to win the final, which was awesome. But mm. I think the key as was to understand what made people tick, Mm. to make it fun, to make it the environment that everyone was, to treat everyone the same because a lot of these guys hadn't – some of them were 17, hadn't even played first-class cricket. Some didn't speak English. So we just tried to make things as fun as possible to let people be themselves and I think let people – Train like they wanted to do whatever they didn't. What people also don't understand is that international cricketers, like we had you, we had Graham Smith, and a few others. You guys have been playing non-stop. You didn't need to train. 
Mm. And I think everyone understood that. It was like, if you want to come to training, train. If you don't, it's okay. And I remember that year, I gave things optional. I wanted to put responsibility on the player. Mm. So I'd say, everything is optional. If you want to train, train. If you don't, don't. I found that people trained harder than being told what to do. No one likes being told what to do. So make it optional for the player. That means they're in, they feel like they're in control and in charge and it makes them feel happy because they've got the option and the choice, if you've got a choice, of what they want to do. So their preparation always felt like it was right for what they needed. But, yeah, I look back there of just trying to inspire people, um, trying to be a leader that would always back the player no matter what. If it didn't work, it didn't work, but I'd back you. And if anyone had a go, I'd, I'd back them, I'd publicly back them. And I think the player, and I generally believed it, you know, it's fine to say I'm going to back Shane Watson no matter what if you're not performing. You know, so I tried to give every single player the thought that you have my 100% backing no matter what. And um, I think that's really important. If you know you've got the support of your captain, it's, it's you just know. I know as a young player when Alan Border threw me the ball at the MCG, he backed me and that made me feel good. Where if you look around, he goes, oh, I'm not going to bowl in because he might get whacked. You, you know that yourself mm-hmm. if a captain's not backing you. Yep. So I think captaincy is not just, it's so much more to leadership and captaincy, um, sensing the moment, going to see someone, putting your arm around them um, or giving them a kick up the backside. You've got to know which one to give them and you've got to know the player because you can have the reverse effect if you get it wrong. Mm. So a good leader knows that time. And that's, I think, I think that's a natural thing. Yep. I think some people are born to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, some people learn how to do it a bit better than probably what they're, what they're used to. Um, but you never also, another thing for captains, what are you never the best version of yourself or the best captain you can be at the start? <laughs> it takes time because what people don't understand with captaincy is all the other things that go into captaincy, trying to get the best out of someone else and suddenly you forget about your own game. Um, the other things about selection, future tours, training, um, press, it, 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 the demands on your time are a lot. So it takes a little bit of time to be, to understand how to make it all work, how to do enough preparation for yourself and how to get the best out of your team. So that takes a little bit of time. I was lucky by the time I came to the Royals, I'd captained a lot with Hampshire, Victoria, a, a lot. So I'd had a bit of experience as a player. So I think that helped me too. Warnie, the one thing that really stands out to me compared to like any, just about anyone that I played with was when there was stuff going on off the field, your ability to be able to shut it out and still bring your best performances like every time. How did you do that? Because most people, it it infiltrates in some way onto the field and it affects your performance. Yeah, that was, that's tough. That's really hard. And everyone's going through things off the field. You know, no matter what it is, whether it's in the public eye or not in the public eye, everyone has a friend that might have let them down, an argument with or disagreement with their partner, worried about their children at school, um, finances, sponsors, management asking you for your time, radio interviews that has to be done. So I, there was three things, no matter what was going in my life, there was three things I always wanted to do before a game. That was I wanted to feel fresh. So however I got that, I had to have my own time. I wanted to feel prepared and I wanted to feel happy. So no matter what was going on in the field, like, and being happy is, there's a lot that goes into that. 
So that is ringing your manager if he's asking you need to do this. So, mate, I'll say yes to that, no to that. So get all that information done. So that's off your head. If it was an argument with a friend or tickets and all those sorts of things, tell me what you need. Otherwise, don't ring me tomorrow. So whatever was in my head, whatever was taking space in my head, I would sort before I walked out onto the game, onto the ground. So by the time I went to bed that night, I was pretty clear in my head. I might have been upset, emotional, angry, whatever. But by the time I got to my bed, I was, I'm ready. So I'd always generally have a good sleep. I didn't have a, I didn't need a lot of sleep at night. I had four or five hours. Mm. Some people need eight to ten, but I only needed four or five. So by the time I got to the ground the next day, I was like, bring it. I am so ready. And that made me, people talk about the zone. The zone, being in the zone, is 100% concentration on what you're doing right now. And you can't have 100% concentration if you've got all those other things because when you're fielding down at five leg or when there's a bit of downtime in the dressing room and you're batting, you're sitting there thinking, oh, I've got to do that tonight or I've got to do this. So you occupied your head with so much other stuff. So I used to get rid of it fresh, prepared and happy. Get those three things done, get it out the way. So by the time the game comes around, get out there. So good. That's so simple, and, and which is the reason yeah. why you were able to do what you did and shut it out. Yeah. All right. I wish I, wish I knew that. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes when I've done all that, sometimes the other thing was, well, that's stuffing up. I'm not going to stuff up out here either. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good default. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Warner, you're now in the media and you are a phenomenal commentator. And I absolutely love listening to you. But like, from what you know now, from the media perspective, would you have approached the media in a different way when you were playing? I think, at the, I, I, think I had at the start was the hardest with the media because mm. you don't understand it. <laughs> so I, I remember sitting on a bus in one of the Ashes tours, I don't know what year it was, and saying 10 things you didn't know about Shane Warne. I'm ready to go. Hang on, that's not true. So it must have been the 93 Ashes tour. And, I, and I'm going, how can this bloke write about me that doesn't even know me and this is just not true? So, and you just sort of, oh, who cares? And then people say to you, some of the experience, well, oh, don't read it. Don't worry about that stuff. Don't read it. For the modern day player, it's impossible not to hear some of the stuff that's going on. So I learnt that no matter what, I would read everything. I read wow. everything. <laughs> if it was a journalist that was just his daily job was to write a column and it was nailing me, who cares, mate, whatever. If it was someone I respected, their opinion, then I would take it up with them personally. And that I would get offended with that. Because what happens? Someone writes something about Shane Watson. Shane Watson, blah, 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 blah. If you don't read it, your friends, your family call you and they say, mate, you should see what Shane Warne said about you last night. He said this. And then you read it and you go, it's not that bad. So they always make it out worse than what it is because they, they love you. So they want to protect you and they take offence that I might have said something bad about you. But what I actually said was nowhere near as what's relayed to you. <laughs> so that's why I always read it and took it in myself. And then if it was, a, as I said, a journalist I respected, I'd be at the ground, I, and I wouldn't sit there and go, there's that bloody, you know, so-and-so guy, he nailed me last night. I'd go up and speak to him and say, um, mate, I read your article. Um, what was your point in it? I didn't see any point there. 
and you're actually factually wrong because this happened. <laughs> and then it's up to him. I, I, I've got it off my chest. <laughs> so you go back to that fresh, prepared, happy stuff. You've got it off your chest. It's not sitting in there festering and going, I hate that, but I hate him. Have it out with him because, you know, I love my TV commentary and I can be sometimes brutal on people and I, and I wish I wasn't, but I, 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 I'm emotional because I, I don't have a personal vendetta against anyone. Arjuna Ranatunga probably only. But besides, <laughs> you let that go? But besides that, <laughs> oh, mate, I hated him first. Um, <laughs> but apart from everything else, I don't, you know, whether it's I've, I, I've criticised Mitchell Stark pretty mm. openly on there, and that's because he opted out of a couple of Shield games before the first test match, bowled 30-odd wides in the test match, bowling down the leg side, for the first test match of the summer and Australia just lose. And I'm thinking, well, if you maybe had played a couple of shield games and bowled, you might have been in better form for the first test match. And then, so that's not a personal attack on Mitchell Stark as a person. It's just saying, mate, your preparation was wrong. You couldn't deliver your best skills. And if you're going to bowl that, you shouldn't be playing. Go back to shield cricket, get some miles in your legs. You're one of our best bowlers and come and deliver your best skills because at your best, we Australia need you in the team. But don't come and deliver that garbage because you're better than that. So that's not a personal attack on Mitchell Stark. That's, as a commentator, my observations. And when someone doesn't deliver their best, you've got to say, why aren't they? Why aren't they delivering their best? And that's what I think anyone gets frustrated at is when someone doesn't deliver their best. And I was always told by Kerry Packer, don't tell me what I can see. I'm not a dummy. Tell me why it's happening as a commentator. (laughs) He said, the second thing is, not all of us ever are going to have the opportunity to play for Australia out in the middle. Take me out there and what it's like. (laughs) He said, take me out into the middle. He said, thirdly, create debate. He said, if Pat Cummins and Hazelwood's bowling, but you think Nathan Lyons are bowling, tell me what the captains have as options as bowlers and why you'd be bowling someone else. Because the guys on the couch be saying, yeah, I agree with him, or no, I reckon he's wrong. Bowl this guy. So that creates debate and interest. Mm. So I try and keep it that. I try and keep people a sense of what it's like out in the middle. I try and make it fun. I try and make it informative. It's it's, it's tricky. It's not as easy as everyone thinks. And I think when we've been in lockdown, you watch some of the old footage, whether it be golf, cricket, whatever the sport, if you get good commentators commentating over the top, it enhances the sport. Mm. So... And I think all of us talk too much. Sometimes just that pause and letting the pitchers do the talking is something we can all learn. And I need to get better at that too. I need to get better at that at commentary. So I'm always trying to improve. I love it. Um, yeah, it's, it's a great way to stay involved into the game. So I really enjoy that. And it's nice to be around each morning if someone wants to chat. Um, I know I often chat with Nathan Lyon about fields and things like that in the morning of the game. What did you see? So it's nice to have that input uh, and help out too. Yep, and allow people who are watching to be able to gain your incredible insights as well. Because when they're just watching on the on the field, right. they, yeah, you do. <laughs> nah, thanks, Wada. Thank you. Um, okay, this is going to dig into a little a little deeper into an aspect of life away from cricket that look most people don't really yep. talk about unless you're unless you're best mates with them. And this and this digs into like the financial lessons that you've learned. Um, so looking back from where you are right now. Would you have done mm-hmm. anything differently from a wealth generation 
perspective or an investment perspective. And this is definitely not like how much money you got or anything like that at all. It's all to do yeah, yeah. with what you've, if you look back, would you have done things slightly different? Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, I think all of us, if we had that hindsight, <laughs> uh, property is one, you know, property is one of the biggest things. The, the one thing that is really important for any sportsman is no one remembers your figures. It's great what you read out before and that's awesome. And if you're not a cricket lover, people wouldn't know those statistics, but they'll remember the way you played the game. Mm. They'll remember, I love watching Shane Watson play. You know, I love watching the way he plays. They won't remember your numbers. So statistics, yes, cricket is a statistic-based game, but it's not about statistics. It's about the way you played the game. And if you played it properly and well and entertaining and did okay, then everything else will look after itself. (laughs) And that's what I sort of say, people go, oh, I've got it. If I make some hundreds now, I might be able to get this deal here or get an IPL contract or whatever it might be. That will naturally happen if you perform. So play well on the field and let the rest take care of itself. The most important thing about letting it take care of itself is having the right people off the field looking after you and having the right people around you that are not in it just for money. They're in it to help you. Uh, and manage you rather than just an agent says, oh, we've got this deal, we've got this deal, let's take 20, 20, 10, whatever the numbers are, take all these deals. Suddenly you're all over the place and now you're not getting a big check. You're getting more time you have to give to everyone and that's the hardest thing. So I was very lucky at an early age that I had some good people around me yep. um, and I never, ever signed with anyone or did anything or supported a product or did anything that I didn't actually believe in. No matter how big the check was, I never did anything that I didn't believe in or use myself. Um, so I've tried to do less for more. I tried to have less sponsors rather than a lot of people or ambassadors um, and try and commit my time to those guys as much as possible rather than everyone. Um, so less was more was the way I sort of worked it out. But I wish I had a bought property. You know, I look back at some of the houses I had, I think, investing in property over the years you think now and you go geez that's expensive but i'm telling you in 15 20 years it won't be expensive and if you work on the theory of the property every seven to ten years doubles yep in 20 years it's going to double three times what it's worth today yep yeah absolutely so you were so when you're through through your career you had you were able to find a couple of really good advisors who are able to help you yep. like navigate your way through yeah because that's that is one of the biggest challenges that every well i know what I faced as well is trying to find the right yep. person that isn't in it just to be able to get a clip. They're there because they, yep. uh, that would be an outcome that they'd get, but they're really in there to be able to help you generate as much wealth as you can with what you earn. And that's challenging. You've got to have someone that's got your best interest at heart. And it's, uh, you know, it's a marathon, not a sprint. You know, it's not about taking the quick cash. It's about long-term. It's about the end. And that's why I said, just keep performing on the field and the rest of the stuff will look after yourself. Get the right people that are interested in you, not just making a buck. And there's plenty of sharks out there, plenty of people, salesmen, that'll tell you whatever you want to hear. Um, You actually want someone that says, you know what, Watto, don't worry about it, mate. You just go and play cricket. I've got this sorted. Um, The other thing that I think the modern-day cricketer needs is some sort of mentor outside of the bubble because we all live in a bubble. And so if you go through a cricketer's modern day cricketer's life, wake up in the morning, have breakfast with your team, go to training with your team, you play with your team, you get home on a bus with a team, and then you generally don't go out. 
you sit there and people will watch movies, they'll watch Netflix, they'll watch whatever, play PlayStation on their phone, Instagram. So if you have someone outside of that bubble, you can actually have a conversation about something else to take your mind off it because you're yep. living and breathing it 24-7 every single day. So I was lucky enough that guys like Kerry Packer, Lloyd Williams, who was one mm-hmm. of the, you know, one of my <laughs> huge mentors. Um, you know, I've been so lucky to have someone like Lloyd Williams for his advice. Mm. You know, guys, David Coe, who unfortunately is not here anymore, even Terry Jenner, these guys that you could – TJ is a really interesting one. I, I, I can't remember where the tour was, but I didn't bowl very well for the day. I tried everything. It just didn't happen. And I was so frustrated when I got up in the hotel and I rang TJ. I said, G'day, TJ. How you going, mate? He goes, yeah, I'm going okay. Better than you after I watched you bowl today. I said, oh, thanks, mate. You know, so straight up, there was no, you know, touchy-feely stuff. <laughs> and suddenly I went on this 30-minute rant. Oh, then what about the old B? What about all this? He didn't say a word. At the end of it, he goes, well, good luck tomorrow. I said, thanks, TJ. And I felt better. He didn't say anything. <laughs> I just got it off my chest. Yep. So I, I think to have someone there as a mentor or advisor that you can ring or talk to that's outside of your bubble as a sportsman, just to vent, to rant, to chat, um, talk about a bottle of wine or whatever your hobbies and interests are, your golf mm. swing, um, all that stuff, rather than even social media. You know, you finish, you're sitting in your room, you're looking at what people are saying, what are they saying on Twitter, Instagram, and all that sort of stuff. It's like you never switch off from it. Yeah. So having someone from outside of your bubble, I think, is really important. And the other one is if... Modern-day cricketers earn enough money now to have a personal assistant that's a go-between your manager and you, mm. whether it be radio, whatever the demands are of the modern-day player and the time restrictions, having someone coordinate that and not you, that you can just once a day they shoot you an email saying, right, you've got to do this, 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 and this, and you don't have to worry about it, is really important too. Finding one a good one is not easy, but <laughs> yeah. it's really important to have that person because most people have it from their management company and they work for the management company. So they'll always err on the side of the manager, the person who pays them. So if you can have an independent that works for you, that can go back to management and say, no, no, that doesn't suit Shane. No, that doesn't suit what I, or that doesn't suit whoever. You've got to fit in with him. Yep. You don't get them dictating to you is really important to, as yep. well. Yeah, that's amazing advice. A lot of cricketers with some money to invest, always looking to find a great business yep. to invest in and be a part of. Do you have any specific yep. lessons that you've learned by being involved in a business that was looking like it was going to be good, but it just didn't turn out that way? Uh, yeah, I do have some advice. We don't know what much about things in that form of the game or that world unless we study it and read it. Mm. Don't get into something that people say, oh, this is going to be awesome. Because the worst thing you can do is recommend to someone that, oh, this this bloke told me that this is going to be really good. Mm. We all have that sort of stuff. It might be a racehorse. It might be a share. It might mm. be whatever. Now, a racehorse is a little bit different to a share investing in money, but I only do it if I believe in it, as I said before. Mm. So if I want to invest in a share, for instance, I'm going to read up on it. And if I don't know, still understand, I'm going to ask people that do know. Why is this happening or why is this happening in this model? Is the government su- uh, supporting them? Uh, what, uh, uh, you know, all the different stuff. What's their marketing budget? What's their, all the mm. questions that you might ask about it specific so you understand it a bit more. Mm. So then I'm going to invest. You say, no, I, that, that actually makes sense to me. And the people I've spoken to say it makes sense. So, yeah, I'm going to give that a crack. 
<laughs> but never invest something that's going to put you under stress. Only invest a little bit of money that if it doesn't work, it's okay. As much as you don't want to lose it, mm. don't invest too much that it's a stress on you. Just invest it. Oh, wow. That turned out to be awesome. So that would be a share sort of advice that I would would um, sort of give to people. We always like that. I never invested money into some of the stuff until... You know, at the start, I'd give, you know, whether it be a thousand bucks or five grand or whatever it was. Yeah, sure, mate. Yeah, go on. But then when that never happened, I just lost it. I said, no, hang on. I don't, I work too hard to do that. So then I took up that advice, which was from my father, who's a financial planner. And it's very easy to listen to my dad. And if I had to listen to my dad a lot more, if he wasn't my dad as my financial planner, <laughs> I probably would have made a fair bit of cash. But it's like, yeah, yeah whatever, dad. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but he did give me that advice about, you know, study up on it, read up on it. If you don't understand, ask me ask some other people, ask a random guy who's in that business and get more informed before you make a decision. So, you know, anytime you can make an informed decision, you're going to do, you're more chance of it working. Yep. And that's also around your business um, experiences as well, for the businesses that you've been involved in and put your put your name to and, and grown. Yeah. So for, for me, I the gin business I'm in at the moment, mm-hmm. uh, we're going really well. I've got my own gin, which is 708 Gin. Um, we just mm-hmm. shut down production uh, of the gin to, for non-for-profit to make hand sanitizers. Oh, wow. The, the couple of guys I'm in business with yep. uh, are doctors. So they've <laughs> seen the front line through this coronavirus, how hard it is. So the hand sanitizer is so important. Okay. So we shut down our business, or sorry, ceased production, Yeah. produced hand sanitizers for non-for-profit and just gave them to the hospital. So um, that was pretty good. Um, I'm pretty lucky I've got three or four other businesses that I've got small percentages in and okay. taken interest in. And I think... When you, you, I'm more about taking less money up front, if not no money up front, and getting a a, a percentage of the upside because then I'm invested into the business rather than here's your X amount of dollars, be the face for a year, you help grow that business, Mm. and then they, uh, thanks mate, we're going to someone else now. Yeah. So I try and get, um, even if it's a small percentage of that business, if I can, because if that grows and you're helping it grow, then you Mm. actually see the upside of that rather than just a cash amount. Um, But there are certain things that you do if the deal is good and you believe in it, then, yeah, sure, take that cash up front. But more or less try and get a percentage of the business rather than an upfront fee. Yep. And with those businesses that you've got a share in, are you involved, heavily involved, like day-to-day or weekly to be able to really be across what's going on, have input into the direction that these businesses are going? Yeah, I, I've got most of the time with the gin, we have daily, with, you know, the, the owners, we've got our own WhatsApp group, we talk, mm-hmm. we show share videos of something else we've seen, what about this label, mm-hmm. uh, this article gets posted in there if we see something, so we're starting with that. I've got a CBD oil business coming out pretty soon. Wow. Um, I've got a documentary coming out on Amazon Prime. Uh, there's a, uh, I, I own a percentage of the Royals, I own 3% of the Radistan Royals. Wow. Um, so I speak to Manage and a few of the guys often. There's a yeah. few other things that I'm doing okay in too. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm across most of it. So, yeah. you know, you, I think I've got five or six that I'm invested in and mm-hmm. got to share the business. So that's each day. Then you're a parent mm-hmm. for three kids as well. You've got your own day and own interests, TV, mm-hmm. commentary, poker. <laughs> and so you throw all that in the mix and people yeah. say, what do you do now? I yeah. go, oh, I'm actually still pretty busy, unfortunately. Or excitingly. But it keeps me out of trouble. Got a lot of different a lot of different interesting things going on. Yeah. Yeah, which is good. 
we all go through our ups and downs in life and you've certainly had your fair share. Do you have a saying that you always remind yourself of to try and navigate your way through these down periods, especially like, as quick as you can? Never give up, no matter what, about achieving what you want to achieve. Having goals um, and writing them down. I, I sleep when I go to bed. I have a paper. Like, here it is here. I just have my pad um, here with me all the time. So even when we're talking, I've got it all here. I've got all my lists of stuff and pages. Oh, I can't see, but I've got my pages, little notepad here and my pen. Mm-hmm. I'm not one of the technical side of things. Yeah, I'm sure I love my phone and stuff like that and all the gadgets. But every night I just keep my pad and pen next to my bed. So if I think of something at night that I want to do, I'll write it down. Uh, something I want to achieve, whether it be getting my motorcycle license, um, playing golf with Michael Jordan, whatever it might be, <laughs> I'll write it down on this. And um, I think when you write something down, you sort of try to reach those goals yeah. then. Um, sometimes when you think in your head, you, oh, what was I was thinking about last night? So, And I, I try and turn my phone off at night. I put it on airplane mode, plug it in. I don't keep it on during the night. And, and in the mornings, the first 15, 20 minutes, I try not to check my phone when I wake up because when you wake up, you suddenly grab your phone then you go to WhatsApp, text messages, email, Instagram, Twitter, whatever else, Safari, check out what's going on. And within the space of two or three minutes, you're buzzing, I've got to do this, I've got to do that. Right, I've got to go off and do this, I've got to email this person. So I try and take 20 minutes, 15, 20 minutes. I'll get up, walk outside, sit down outside for a while. I have a little durry. And then I'll uh, just think about stuff, what I'm going to do today. Okay, radio have a glass of water, grab an apple and go, okay, check my phone. So I'm in, and I'm a lot calmer headspace yep. when I'm about to address my business side of things about what's going on with the gym, the CBD, my PA, all the stuff that happens for all of us, and then go, okay, I'm ready to do it. Rather than stressing and rushing, I've got to go do this, mm. I find that I'm a lot calmer with the way I approach it, which means I think clearer with my answers and my response. That is great advice that I'll be taking on. Yes. <laughs> give yourself 15 minutes. Yes, instead of, yeah, absolutely. It's amazing advice. <laughs> Thank you. Just give yourself 15 minutes. That's all. Yep. Yep. Brilliant. This is my last question, Woody, and I sincerely do appreciate your time, mate. Um, you have That's met okay. and Pleasure. been around some of the most successful people in the world. Can you name one or two of those people who have inspired you the most and why? I think inspiration comes from within. I, I I mean, people can give you a motivational speech which might inspire you to be better and, and things like that. But for you to do it daily and get into that routine of daily doing it and being disciplined, you have to do it yourself. No one else can. And I think that's why the greats have that self-discipline in any era of sport. They're driven. They're driven. You know, they, 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 they won't stop. They'll just keep going. You go, geez, how does he keep doing that? But you're just driven. And I, so I think I've seen that trait and I think the disciplines, which some people might not see as discipline, but there are disciplines in certain things that everyone does, self-driven, self-inspire and discipline in certain ways. And, and, and I know this might sound, and they're pretty anal about stuff, that whether it be tidy, messy, I, I don't know, there's just some things about just being anal with things, you know. There's a different mind space with that. Um, but being around guys like 
you know, Chris Martin, who's one of my best friends, who's the lead yeah. singer Coldplay. Um, <laughs> yep. Watching the way he is with people, watching the way he talks about, um, just things we chat about. About So we have a thing, you know, when you don't see some of your friends for a while, but when you do see them or, you know, you pick up the phone and go, geez, it feels like yesterday I was speaking to him. They're your true friends that you know you've gelled with and have, have connection with over a period of time. And you don't have to feel like, oh, uh, how are you? What's go-? Like, you just, it just flows. And with Chris, we have this thing. So instead of saying, oh, how, how are you going, mate? What have you been up to? We have this thing that says, right. So when we go for a walk where he lives, and up, up the hill generally, it's, he'll say, right, here's my top five things. So we'll do five things each about <laughs> that's annoying us. Yeah. So he'll say, right, um, I'm having a mental block about writing a song or uh, my kids at school, I'm worried about this, I'm stressed about that, um, not feeling well, whatever it might be. And he'll tow up the hill, we'll walk up the hill, he goes, right, your turn. So on the way down, I'll say, right, I'm upset about this poker hand, this poker hand, how did I get so lucky? Uh, you know, my children at school, you know, so whatever it might be, and you get down the bottom and you're both just told what's on your mind. So then you sit down and chat about Oh, how come that? What, what's wrong? Why is that on your mind? Why are you worried about that? Tell me what you could have done differently. So it's a really good way of catching up with people uh, rather than saying, "Oh, what else is happening? What's news? Yeah. <laughs> uh, what have you been doing?" Mm. It's a really cool way to do it. So he's been yeah. great. Ed Sheeran is another, uh, yeah, okay. obviously a singer yeah. who's become a great mate. He, I mean, his work ethic, <laughs> the same as Chris, their work ethic is oh, unbelievable. But he knows when to switch on and switch off. Can't contact him. You just don't contact yeah, okay. him. He has a little, he doesn't have a phone. Well, he's probably got the MI5 secret one, but he's got <laughs> an, uh, uh, just an email. That's it. So you just email him and he gets back to you when he wants. There's no, he can't, he's not contactable 24-7. He shuts down and that's it. You can't contact him. Um, so I think both Chris and Ed, their work ethics are really, really good. There's been, you know, watching Sportsman inspires me to watch. You know, when I've been watching the Michael Jordan documentary, I think like a lot of people have the last dance, I think it's been fantastic. Yeah, isn't it fascinating? Um, just the access, <laughs> you know, just the access, the, the team dynamics. Um, I've been really impressed with Phil Jackson, the coach, about how he's allowed the, that team to be together with so many egos and everything in that team. And so many great players, but all the players, Michael Jordan was the man. They didn't try and compete with him. They didn't try and do anything. He was the man. Let him be the man. It's going to help all of us anyway. So I, I, I really enjoy that. I love Phil Jackson allowing Dennis Rodman to go off the Vegas for hours, let off some steam. I found it pretty cool that Jordan had to go down and get him, and he was in there with Carmen Electra and said, <laughs> "Come on out, here, come." I thought that was really yeah. cool. So. Yeah. I just, I love that access. Um, you know, it would have been nice, I suppose, at times through our career to have people to have that access. And, um, but yeah, you know, I'm doing a documentary. That's another thing I'm part of. I've got this documentary mm. coming out where it was meant to be this year. They're following me through the Australian summer and then um, at home with the kids, IPL in India, <laughs> uh, Vegas poker, Sky commentary in, uh, in, in England then the Dunhill, and so they're getting a cross-section of everything that I, how I spend my year and my mm. life on a daily routine, sitting down and talking about moments, unseen footage. Um, I've given them VHS tapes and all that sort of stuff, and then this coronavirus hit, so mm. um, it's probably going to be pushed back a little bit, but yeah. um, 
hopefully it'll be out next year. So I'm looking forward to doing that actually. Yeah, I can't That'd wait to cool. can't wait to watch that. Because as you mentioned about yeah. the last last dance, the like the footage that they that they got and the access that they got, but then also to be able to see uh, Michael Jordan talking through the, all those different experiences exactly. is exactly. super inspiring and super cool. Yeah, so that's you know obviously there's so many moments on and off the field in my life. So they'll be we'll be showing that which they're mm. going to buy all the old footage and all that sort of stuff and talk through it. Um, so yeah, um, it's going to be a great thing to have. Mm. Um, for my children and their children that they say, oh, this was, you know, this was my dad. Yeah. You know? Hopefully I'm around for a bit longer, but it'll be just a nice thing to have forever. Yeah. And I think it's going to be, it's going to be quite tough at times to go through, relive some incidents. Mm. Um, but also it'll be quite fun to relive some of that old footage stuff because I've been watching on Fox Sports some of this old stuff, old masters of golf, old cricket stuff, old, and it's just old AFL. It's been awesome watching all the old stuff. And, um, yep. I know we used to play in the dinosaur era and 30 years ago was a long time, but there was still some bloody good cricket that was played back then too. Hell yeah, no question. Well, Warney, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to be on this episode of Lessons Learned with the Greats. I have been so ridiculously lucky to have had you mentor me since I was 20 years old. So to have this chance for everyone to listen to gain these amazing insights as I've been so fortunate to get from you over the years is incredibly special. Thank you so much for being so generous to sharing all your experiences with us. And we are all truly indebted to you for allowing us to dig deeper into the mind of the greatest bowler the world's ever seen. Thank you, mate. Thank you so much for having me on. What I really appreciate it, mate. Uh, friends for life. That's what it's all about, mate. It's what it's about, the friends you make along the way. Um, so thank you very much for having me. Hopefully um, everyone enjoyed it and uh, look forward to seeing you soon. I certainly will, Warnie. Thank you, mate. For more episodes of Lessons Learned with the Greats, head to t20stars.com forward slash podcast. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.